I'm Carolyn Roper's husband, David. And I'm on the staff here, too. And we're still trying to figure out what I do. Would you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? And we want to take another look at Paul's glimpse of our future. There's no question that the trend line is down. The world is uh, getting worse by the day. It's incredible to think of uh, the craziness in our world these days. We can kill uh, human babies with impunity, but we protect baby seals. Uh, We censor high and lofty ideas that used to be believed and taught and written. Uh, And we tolerate all sorts of filth and pornography. It's a, it's a crazy world that we're living in, and as Paul points out in this book, it's going to get much worse before it gets any better. That's the bad news. But there is some good news. And it's that that Paul is concerned with here in the last part of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul says the world is getting older, it's getting colder, But, in verse 13, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This uh, paragraph is a little theological cameo. It's uh, just a few verses, but it's uh, pregnant with significance. What Paul does here, as theologians say, is give us the order of salvation. That's just a theological term, and it doesn't have much meaning to us. It's a fairly cold way of describing these verses. But uh, I think you'll see as we work our way through this text that there's an enormous amount of comfort here for us in these uh, cold, loveless days. Paul says, first of all, I want you to know that Regardless of what's happening out there in your world, no matter how many unloving people are entering your life or how many people are leaving you, God loves you. He loves you. He'll never leave you. You see how Paul puts it? I want to thank God, he says, for you brothers because you're loved by the Lord. Despite the detours and the moral lapses and the failures and the shortfall in our lives this week and even last night and this morning, God still loves you. Isn't it odd that a being like God who sees the facade still loves the clod that he made out of sod? (laughs) Now, isn't that odd? But that's enormously encouraging. I just read last week some words by Ruth Calkins. 
uh, Calkin, excuse me. God, I may fall flat on my face. I may fail until I feel old and beaten and done in. Yet your love for me is changeless. All the music may go out of my life. My private world may shatter to dust. Even so, you will hold me in the palm of your steady hand. No turn in the affairs of my fractured life can baffle you. Satan, with all his braggadocia, cannot distract you. Nothing will separate me from your measureless love. Pain can't, disappointment can't, anguish can't, yesterday, today, tomorrow can't. The loss of my dearest love can't, death can't, life can't. Riots, war, insanity, hunger, neurosis, disease, none of these things, nor all of them heaped together, can budge the fact that I am dearly loved, completely forgiven, and forever free through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Jesus loves us. This I know because the Bible tells me so. That, to me, is the most precious, engaging, profound thought that I can think at a time like this. Now, uh, that's the first thing that we need to know. We're greatly loved, dearly loved by God. The second thing that Paul wants us to know is that we're chosen by him. You notice how Paul puts it? God chose you for himself, literally. The mood of the verb indicates that this is something that's very personal. He chose you for himself, selected you. Uh, I'm sure that many of you from time to time have wrestled with the question of sovereignty and free will and how God's choice ties together with our human responsibility and the seeming freedom that we have to choose for or against God. I used to have a lot of answers to that conundrum. I don't have any answers anymore. When people ask me what I think, I just shrug. I have to leave that one up to God. We're having trouble again with the mic here, Mark, I think. Uh, I... uh, I noticed this last week that some scientist uh, has put together a compendium of what he calls uh, scientific ignorance. It's called a dictionary of, of ignorance. It has to do with all the things that scientists don't know yet. It seems that every time we discover some fact, we discover a, a number of other unknowns that uh, have to be taken into account. I'd like to see somebody publish a dictionary of theological ignorance. There are just so many things we don't know, and it seems that the closer we get to God, the more we don't know. And I cannot possibly uh, unravel this Gordian knot for you. I, I have no idea how God can choose us and yet, we, and yet give us the gift of, of responsibility and, and freedom, and yet I know that's what the Bible says. The particular verse that... I wonder, should I shift to this other mic again, Mark? Are we back on now? Okay, why don't we just keep this one there? I just won't move around. Someone said, this is one of those mornings, whatever could happen will. As they say, Murphy was an optimist. Let's see, where was I? The word that Paul uses for this, uh, uh, for this verb, this idea of, of election, is an unusual word. It's not the, the term that's normally used for choice or election. The, the word only occurs one other place in the New Testament, in Philippians, where Paul is 
concerned about the two options he has in life, either to live or die, and he says, I don't know which I prefer, which I would choose. He uses that word. And that's actually the, the meaning of the term. And when I understand it this way, it has so much more meaning for me, simply saying that God prefers us. The term is used outside the Bible for people picking fruit. They choose certain pieces of fruit because they prefer those fruits. And that's what we need to understand, that in eternity, before you were even a twinkle in your father's eye, God preferred you. He chose you. I I always felt sorry for those kids that never got selected in P.E. classes. I I think there's something, uh, one of the reasons I I think I majored in P.E. and wanted to be a phys ed teacher is because I never wanted to do that to kids. I I had P.E. teachers when I was growing up who would uh, let the big kids choose sides. And uh, some of you know the horror of being the last person chosen. There are two of you and... The choice is really diff- difficult for the person choosing because neither one of you are an asset to their team, but uh, the other fellow or girl gets chosen, you get left behind. That's such a, such a terrible thing to do to a kid. And uh, I just want you to understand that even though you may have been deselected when you were a kid, God has chosen you. He loves you. And before you were even born, in the very beginning, Paul says, God chose you to to know him. He called you to himself. That's the second step. Not only did he choose you, he called you. And uh, when Paul uses that term, he assumes that we will respond. It's an invitation that he makes. He beckons us to himself, and and we come in response to to that call. I've commented so often on the fact that these uh, odd hungers and yearnings and longings that we have, these unsatisfied desires that nothing really can satisfy, are really God's voice calling us to himself. David said that's God saying, seek my face. He says that in Psalm 127. We think that what we want is academic excellence or a family or achievement business, and so we accomplish one goal after another, and and yet there's always that uh, sense of dissatisfaction, something more, a kind of restlessness that, uh, that, that nothing will satisfy. Uh, George Herbert has a little poem. I'm not going to try to read the entire poem to you because it's difficult to follow unless you uh, you just think about it a lot. But he describes... God having a glass of blessings which he wanted to pour out on man. And so first he poured out strength and then beauty and then wisdom and then honor and pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest in the bottom lay. In other words, uh, God dispensed uh, beauty and wisdom and honor and pleasure to the human race. And then he came to the bottom of his treasure chest where rest was found and he stayed his hand, as Herbert puts it. He, he didn't hand out rest. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me. And rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both of us should losers be. So let him keep the rest, that is, strength and beauty and wisdom and honor and pleasure, but keep them with repining restlessness, 
Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. See, that, uh, that restlessness, that weariness, that lack of satisfaction is really God's voice calling you home like uh, Steelhead making his way up, up river to, uh, to, its, uh, to its origins. It's God calling, beckoning to you. And then somewhere along the line, God saw to it that someone shared the gospel with you. Perhaps it was when you were a child, perhaps it was in a youth group or young life uh, meeting, or perhaps it was here on Sunday morning. Some of you have just quietly invited Christ into your life while you're seated here, as you've heard the gospel preached, or in a growth group or in a Bible study. Uh, God saw to it that you got enough information to respond to the gospel. God loved you. God chose you. And then he called you to himself. And then, as Paul tells us, he began to sanctify us. God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in truth. Just as our choice and our call are linked together, so this sanctifying process is linked together. Paul says that that sanctification, that is the production of holiness in us, is the result of both the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of faith. Our part is to believe the truth. His part is to sanctify us through the Spirit. Now, I don't understand how that works. There's a great deal of mystery in this process. There's a great deal of magic, if we can put it that way. The Holy Spirit is working his will on us. He is little by little conforming us to the character of Christ. And at the same time, there is an intent and purpose in our heart to respond in obedience to the truth. God is willing And he's doing on our behalf, but at the same time, we're willing and we're doing. I can't put those two facts together. It's like uh, these chest expanders we used to use as kids. You know, you just have to pull both ends out in order to get any benefit from it. You have to keep both ends in in, in hand all the time. Both are true. God is, is working in us to do his will, conform us to his character, and he's... He's changing our hearts little by little, but at the same time there is our longing and yearning for it and the intent of our hearts to to obey the truth. I talked to a man last Wednesday morning in our men's class who told me that uh, he recently wandered away from the Lord and he became involved in some things that were morally wrong and and he was sitting one night in a bar thinking back over his life, and he decided he was going to get drunk and forget it all. And uh, after two or three drinks, he heard a voice, not an audible voice, but just, just a, a quiet voice within saying, What in the world are you doing in here? This is not what you're going to find, where you're going to find what you're looking for. And he got up, and he walked out, And he found a friend, and they sat down, and his friend began to pray for him, and he began to deal with some of these issues in his life. Now, I have to ask the question, whose voice was that? Well, you see, it's the voice of the Holy Spirit, wooing us, calling us back to himself, red-flagging us when we're about to get into trouble, you see. That's the work that that he's doing uh, on us. Uh, And then... Paul says, there is our part, which is belief in the truth. 
We read the scriptures and uh, we begin to take seriously what God is saying. We recognize, in contrast to those who believe the lie, that this is truth. This is reality. It is true that the meek inherit the earth. It is true that, uh, that uh, we should love our wives as Christ loves the church. It is true that men and, men and women cannot live by bread alone, but by every word which issues from the mouth of God. We begin to take seriously the things that are, that are said to us in this, in this book. And then, after a bit, that process continues to work, and, and we begin to grow. We begin to see progress in our lives. Suffering plays its part as well. Suffering is what rubs the edges off of life, makes us gentler, makes us kinder, makes us more empathetic and understanding, causes us to, to get a better grip on God and count on Him through, through the hard times, teaches us to, to see our own inadequacy and how little we have to bring to every situation, exhausts our resources so that, that we will rely upon His infinite resources. That's why God will very often put us with difficult people and awkward situations and, and ask us to stay there because there are things to be learned. I was reading uh, just this past week about Jacob again, who is one of my favorite characters. I can so easily identify with the old rascal. And uh, Jacob, as you know, was given the name Jacob because when he was born, he was hanging on to his little brother's heel, his twin brother's heel. Uh, and his name is actually taken from the Hebrew word for heel. He was a little healer. Went around uh, tripping people up. Uh, he was the consummate con man. Always manipulating to try to get his way and running roughshod over others. And uh, it's as though God looked at Jacob and said, we've got to do something about that. This is not right. I, I don't want my man to, to go on using people in this way. And... Uh, so he sent him up to Syria. Uh, from a human standpoint, Jacob had to escape from his brother Esau, who was going to murder him because he stole his brother's inheritance. But uh, he made his way up to, to Syria, and uh, he lived with Laban, his uncle, who turned out to be as mean as a snake. And uh, uh, he outconned Jacob. He ran roughshod over Jacob. You may know the story. Laban had two daughters. One was very pretty and one was ugly. And uh, Jacob, because he was a man who was concerned about appearances, fell for the for the pretty daughter, and he decided he would he would be willing to work for seven years for the beautiful daughter, Rachel. And uh, on his wedding night, you know the story, uh, Laban slipped uh, the ugly one into his tent, and he didn't even know it, and so he was he was stuck with her for seven more years. But uh, what happened is that he ran into someone who was meaner than he was. Laban was mean as a junkyard dog. And uh, he learned through having to, uh, to go through those hard circumstances what was in his own heart, see. He saw his own mean little heart. And, and God may do that to us. Puts us in situations that are hard, but that's part of the sanctifying work of, of the Spirit. Delay. And time are all part of the process. It doesn't happen in a hurry. Failure is a part of the process. God is more concerned 
that we learn humility, then that we got to get everything perfect. If we were doing everything right, we would think we're well underway. And I think that's why he permits these terrible, disastrous failures in our life, because he would rather see us on our knees before him than, than feeling proud of ourselves. He doesn't like priggishness. He doesn't like self-righteousness. He has to deal with it. So he will take his hands off of us and let us fail, and we'll struggle. But that's all part of the sanctifying work. As Tug McGraw says, some days you tame the tiger, and some days the tiger has you for lunch. You lose sometimes. You stumble, and you fail, and you fall. But you see, it's all part of the process that God is, is working in our lives in order to conform us to his son, Jesus Christ. And in the end, Paul says, we will be saved. You notice how Paul puts it? Verse 13, God chose you to be saved. God chose you to be saved. No one gets lost in the process. Uh, as, as, as an old proverb puts it, God has feet of wool and hands of steel. You don't hear him coming, but once he gets his hands on you, he's not going to let you go. Once he's got your heart, once you've been regenerated, once you become a son of God, he's not going to let you go. He's going to hang on to you to the very end. Until we see our Lord Jesus, he chose you for himself to be saved. You can't disqualify yourself. You can't deselect yourself. You're part of his family. And he's going to see to it that that sanctifying work goes on until we see our Lord Jesus face to face. And we find ourselves like him. That's what Paul describes here as sharing the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God chose you to be saved. That is to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? That means that we will appear like our Lord Jesus, perfect in mind and body and personality and, and spirit. That's so encouraging to some of you who have distorted bodies and twisted minds and you're struggling now with, with the, the things that have happened to you that that have twisted your thinking and caused you so much consternation and have afflicted your body and you're wondering, is it always going to be like this? No. No, it won't. Someday we'll stand in his presence and we'll be transfigured. We'll be changed. We'll be like him. Have you read Matthew 17 lately? It's the account of the transfiguration of our Lord. James and John and our Lord went up to the top of, of uh, some mountain, probably Mount Hermon, in uh, the north of Palestine. And, and Matthew tells us that he was, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. And his garments like, uh, were as white as, as light. He was transfigured. They saw his glory. It was a preview of his glory and theirs. That's the promise. One of these days... We're going to share his glory. That's, that's always been God's intention for us. I just, uh, uh, this last week, read through Psalm 8 again, and I was struck again by the significance of, of man and woman in that, in that passage. Uh, David was out under the stars. Uh, he spent a lot of time apparently taking long walks at night because he often refers to those experiences in his psalms. And he looked up at the, at the sky. You know, he, he had no awareness of the size of the universe. 
He didn't know that the universe was 17 billion light years across, but he was awed by the by the scope of the universe. He felt little and lost in space, and he said, God, when I behold your handiwork, when I look at the heavens, I wonder why you would care at all for man or that you would ever visit him. And then there is a dawning of truth. He realizes that God has made men and women just a little less than God. Just a little less than God. Uh, if there were a scale to rate, a scale of 1 to 10 to rate the personalities in the universe, uh, God would be 10 and man would be 9. He'll never be 10. But uh, the angels only rate as an 8. So, uh, as someone has said, don't, uh, don't seek to be an angel. Seek to be a man because you will have more glory in the end, you see. That's the promise, that one of these days we're going to share our Lord's glory. We're going to be just, just like him. That's a sure thing. Nobody's going to lose out. Nobody's going to be behind the door when our Lord comes back. No one's going to be missed. No one's going to be passed over that has put their faith in, in Jesus Christ. It's a sure thing. It's laid up in heaven for you. And that ought to keep us steady in these times when everything else seems to be coming unglued around us. I always think this time of the year, something Gary Parsons told me a couple of years ago. Uh, Gary and Jeannie Parsons work, you know, they're on the Young Life staff here in the area. And Katie Parsons is their little girl. And they bought a swing set for her. And they hid it in the garage in a box under Gary's Bronco. And they thought they had successfully hidden it away. And uh, one night uh, they were uh, listening to Katie pray. And she, as she prayed, she said, thank you, God, for the swing set in the box. Under the Bronco, in the garage. And they knew the cat was out of the bag. Well, the cat is out of the bag. Uh, your destiny is fixed. It's in the box, under the Bronco, in the garage, laid up in heaven for you. It's a sure thing. I, I love the way old Peter puts it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. Not because we're such hot stuff. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. So, then, Paul says, verse 15. Brothers, stand firm. Stand firm. Don't quit. Don't want to get off this world. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Don't give in. Don't start thinking about taking your life. Stand firm. Someone told me a couple of years ago that Winston Churchill, during the, the uh, battle for Britain, was invited to speak or to attend a graduation of his old public school, which he did. He attended it. He was asked uh, just before the graduation ceremonies to say a few words. He stood up and he delivered a nine-word address. That's all he had to say to the graduating class. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. And that's what Paul is saying. Never give up. 
And secondly, hold fast, he says, to the teachings, the traditions that we passed on to you. When the hard times come, go back and look at this book and review what God has given to you. That's what he means by holding fast the traditions. The apostles, by means of the Holy Spirit, were given the thoughts of God. Those thoughts were translated into words by means of the Holy Spirit. Those words were written down on on paper, papyrus, parchment. The very words were given by the Holy Spirit. Those words then are preached by means of the Holy Spirit, and they're received by means of the Holy Spirit. It's truth from the mind of God. That's the process by which reality comes from the mind of God into our minds. It's the real thing. And so when the tough times come, the thing to do is to hang on. Just hang on to God for all your words. Never give up. Don't give up. Don't give up on your marriage. Don't give up on a relationship. Don't give up on resisting some habit that overwhelms you from time to time. Never give up. Never give up. And hang on to what you know is true, the mighty resources that we have in in God. Don't read the Bible to get a list of rules. Read the Bible to get to know God and to see what he has for you. Ray Stedman used to tell a story about a a Navajo Indian who... uh, was dirt poor all of his life, tried to grub out a living in a little farm somewhere in, in Oklahoma, I believe, and uh, oil was discovered on his, on his land. He became immensely wealthy overnight, put all that money in the bank. He didn't know what to do with it. Went back to farming. At the end of the first year, w- went into the bank, talked to the bank presidents. I don't know what to do. He says, my crops are all dead. It's been a terrible year. My cows are sick, and I don't have any money, and I don't know what to do. And the, the gentleman took him back into his office and he took all of his wealth, which he was stored up for him in, in, the, in the bank vault, and he laid it out in front of his eyes, and the man realized that everything was okay. He could go back and he could buy more cattle and he could buy more seed and he could go back to farming, the thing he loved to do more than anything else because he had those resources available. And that's what we've got to do when the hard times come. George Wills, some time ago, referred to what he called a crisis of reduced expectations. That's well put. That's exactly what we're facing. We realize that the world is going to be a worse place when we leave it than it was when we entered it, that our children are going to be worse off than, than we are. The trend line is down. The world is literally going to hell in a handbasket. I'm not saying that because I'm just a fusty finger-wagging old man. Paul said that. Jesus said that. This is the truth. But right at Christmas time, we tend to have unrealistic expectations. We think that somehow we're going to reverse that trend. And that when we see our kids or our grandkids and we get together around the tree, it's, it's going to be different this year. But it, And it is fun. It's great. I look forward to it. But we need to keep our expectations realistic. Nothing will really satisfy us in this life going back again and again to these great resources that we have in Christ and hang on to him until he comes. And so Paul prays in verse 16. Prayer is the way truth is translated into life. He prays for the Thessalonians. He prays for us. We ought to pray this for one another. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope Encourage your hearts. 
and strengthen you in every good deed and word. You see, it's that grace that is the incentive for good deeds and and good words. When we realize that it's not because we deserve his goodness that he gave it, it's not because we've earned it, it's not because we have selected him, it's because he has selected us. The bottom line is grace. It's a gift. It's a gift. And as Sue Ellen sang, it's the thought that counts. It's a gift that came through love. That's the good news. There's a lot of bad news around. But the good news is that you're greatly loved of God. He chose you from the beginning for himself. He has called you into a relationship with him by the gospel. He is sanctifying you. That is, he is conforming you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. And one of these days he's going to call us home or he's going to come back and get us and then we're going to share his glory. That's the good news today. Let's pray. Prepare our hearts, Lord, for this time around your table as we reflect back upon your death and we realize that it is that death that makes it all possible. We didn't find you. You found us. We weren't looking for you. You were looking for us. We don't deserve what you've given. We deserve hell itself. But you you died for us. You paid the price to bring us to yourself. Lord, it's because of your mercies that we want to present our bodies a living sacrifice to you. It's not because we're so wonderful or have done anything wonderful. It's because you've given. And we thank you for that. So as we gather around this table, help our thoughts to center upon your cross and remember what we have because of what you did there. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.